Well, good morning, everybody. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Amanda. I am one of the pastoral staff here at Midtown, and I get the joy of continuing our Advent series with you all. And coincidentally, we're talking about joy today. My title is in sermon, Joy Beyond Retail Therapy. Uh, now, if you know me, you probably are giggling to yourself at the irony of the fact that I'm preaching this sermon because uh, for those who don't know me, I have a confession. I really love a good deal, okay? I just love when things are on sale, when it's the perfect gift. Black Friday is, in fact, a holiday for me and my friends, okay? Controversial, I know, but it's the best day. I go and get all of my Christmas shopping done in one day, like, can't beat that, and I find some really good deals. I don't know how it happens. They just find me, and don't get me wrong, Black Friday is not what it used to be, okay? I grew up going with my mom and my grandmothers, and there were steals, okay? Not like actual stealing, however, there was that too. But <laughs> there were good deals to be had on Black Friday. And now I know Justin and I have this conversation often, like, is it really a deal? But let me tell you, they do find me. So if you ever need a good deal, I'm your girl. But, you know, as much as I love going shopping and I love getting a good deal, I find it exhilarating to find the perfect gift for somebody, any gift givers out there. It's like my love language. I love giving them. I don't really like receiving them, but I'll receive them, I guess. Um, but it's so exhilarating to find the perfect gift. And when it's on sale, it's even better. And it gives me this sense of pride. I'm so proud that I found this deal, that I found the perfect gift. And as a gift giver, I just really, really love finding that perfect gift. Because you know what? Um, who doesn't love a good deal? And I would rather not give you a gift if I don't know that you're going to love it. So for me, that's what it's all about. But even though I love finding gifts in the perfect gift, I love the dopamine hits that come from a good sale. And it fills me with pride and happiness, but it doesn't give me true joy or fulfillment. Has anybody ever tried to find joy um, on Amazon, maybe? Or thought that you would feel totally content if you could just have that one thing? And as I reflected on joy this Advent season, I found myself a little convicted with a newfound appreciation for what true joy actually is. So today we're going to take a look at what our source of joy is, what God's intention for joy is in our spiritual formation, and how we can actually be people of joy. So first we're going to take a look at some misconceptions about joy. The first misconception we're going to talk about is that joy is simply a feeling, a mere dopamine hit, if you will. We believe that whatever gives us that feel-good response is the source of our joy. And that feel-good response is what true joy is. But our passage today in verse 11 says, I've told you these things for a purpose, that my joy might be your joy, and that your joy would be wholly mature. Spoiler alert, Jesus is our source of joy. And if Jesus is truly our source of joy, then what are these dopamine hits that we all fall prey to? Well, according to Cleveland Clinic, dopamine is known as the feel-good hormone. It's part of our body's reward system, which is designed to reward us for doing things to survive. Things like eating, things like reproducing, things like com competition, you know, uh, survival of the fittest, anyone. 
<laughs> dopamine is involved in everything from our movements to our memory to our motivation and our pleasure. Our human brains are hardwired to seek out behaviors that produce dopamine. Things like eating sugar and junk food and coffee, I love coffee. Things like shopping and drugs and alcohol and working out, all of these things can be addictive because they release dopamine. And dopamine gives us all of those feel-good feelings. We have happiness and motivation and we're focused. The more dopamine you get, the more you need though. So just like that old saying, too much of a good thing is bad, you can have too much dopamine. Because at first you feel euphoric and you have all of this energy, but after a while you need more dopamine to stay going, to feel satisfied. You're overwhelmed and overstimulated by the extra dopamine that you have and you have to just continue to chase the high to have that same response. And in reality, it's ne you're never truly going to be satisfied. You can keep chasing that high all you want, but it'll just continue to grow. And dopamine doesn't just exist for a euphoric sense for us to feel. It's meant to help us remember the good experiences that we have. And without dopamine, we're tired, we're moody, we're unmotivated, and most of the time we're unhappy. Dopamine is a good thing. It's required for our bodies to function as they should. But it's not what permanent joy is. See, joy is not merely pleasure. It's more than a feeling. It's a pervasive sense of well-being in both thought and feeling, and it's fed by delight in an encompassing good. That is the greatness and goodness of God. And our desire for joy isn't inherently wrong or sinful, but it's where we go for our source that can be detrimental to our spiritual formation. My question to you is, where are you going for your source of joy? What indulgences or sins are you participating in that are actually sabotaging your joy? The second misconception we believe is that we often feel that joy is feeling 100% fully satisfied 100% of the time. The holidays are full of advertisements telling you, hey, if you buy this or if you get this deal, you will feel more joyful. You will have a fully satisfied life. Stories all around us tell us that we are incomplete and that we are incomplete without this object or that experience. We often tend to believe those lies and we believe that joy is really just gaining all of our desires. And sometimes we even believe that our desires are actually our needs. And you know, the synoptic gospels really combat this notion. With the infamous words, what good is it to gain the world if in the process you lose your soul. These words reveal that gaining all our desires doesn't fulfill us. In fact, they actually can cause us to lose our soul. Desires are temporary, but joy is everlasting. What desire is eating at you right now that you're saying, God, if you would just do this, if you would just fix this or give me this, then I'll do whatever you want, I promise. What would you trade your soul for? And the third and final misconception I'll mention today is the belief that to follow Jesus, you must deny yourself any fulfillment. But our passage today 
shows that Jesus doesn't deny our fulfillment. In actuality, he is the only way to our fulfillment. He desires us to have joy in full. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The Greek word here translated for full actually means to overflow. Think abundance, meaning there's no more room for more joy. It's all the way to the top. Do you really believe that Jesus can be your fulfillment? Or do you believe that Jesus restricts your fulfillment? So now that we've covered some misunderstandings, some misconceptions about joy, let's take a look at today's passage a little further in John to discover the true source of our joy, Jesus. In John chapter 15, the gospel writer is in the middle of recounting Jesus' farewell disclosure on the night before he goes to the cross. So he's talking to his disciples here. And he begins by saying, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, this analogy of the vine and the branch is familiar to those in a Jewish tradition because in the Jewish tradition, the vine actually represented Israel, the people of Israel, and they represented that which God would work through. So he, these are the people that God is going to work through, Israel, the vine. But in this imagery, Jesus changes it, and it's intentional to communicate that, in fact, Jesus and his people, all of us, are actually the ones from whom God's purpose now rests. In verses 2 through 4, Jesus goes on to reveal what it actually means to be part of this true vine. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more. Already you are clean because the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. For all the plant lovers out there, um, I am not one, so feel free to school me on this a little bit later. But pruning, from my understanding, my research, and what this passage is saying to us, is that pruning is the purpose of removing dead branches so that living ones can thrive. And it's the process of cutting back or pruning fruitful branches so they can continue to be more productive. Pruning, as one could imagine, could be painful. I imagine not so for the plants, um, but for us humans. If you've ever experienced something like it, you know it can be painful. But pruning is also purposeful. And it's important to clarify what exactly pruning is. Because it's easy to think that pruning is just all of the negative, bad things that happen in life. And God caused this, and what happened here. But biblical pruning are those situations, those moments, and the changes in our life that strip away our human understanding, our human thoughts and feelings, and our attitude and character in order to transform us to be more like Christ. It's things like confronting a hard truth from scripture. It changes how you function as a human. Things like surrender, surrendering people, circumstances, surrendering control, it's a hard one. When we surrender that over to Jesus, that process is a pruning process. And pruning is purposeful, but it is painful. But it, it 
doesn't give a dopamine hit. It's not like all of our deals and all of those shopping and all of those other feel-good things. Pruning actually probably lowers our dopamine because trials are painful and our emotions are real. And, but our emotions, they're not our masters. So pruning may not produce happiness, but we can still have joy because we're rooted in the vine and Christ is in control. In verses 5 through 7, Jesus goes on to say, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, abiding, or as I'll refer to it, remaining, as told in this passage, actually leads to a new heart. And that's produced by our dwelling with the Holy Spirit in his presence. Remaining and abiding is a bit of an ambiguous term. I'm sure if you've been around for a little bit, you've heard it thrown around. You've seen all the books that say abide. I think if you Google it, there's like over 20 that pop up with literally just the name abide. It's like overwhelming your options here. So I don't stand here before you with any grand new revelations necessarily, but we are going to get into some helpful habits about how we can help build a life of remaining. But before we get into that, we have to understand the importance of remaining. When we remain, it'll reflect in our prayer life, this scripture says. Our prayers will shift from self-focused to kingdom-focused. Our prayer life will be more concerned with the glory of God than with our own desires. Now, God does care about our desires, so I'm not saying that. But when we spend time in prayer, what happens is the presence of the Spirit, our wills begin to align with God's, and we become more kingdom-focused. God cares about our desires, but he also it cares about our spiritual formation. Jesus continues in verse 8, saying, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Bearing fruit is the product of remaining. Jesus explains that a life that remains in him, or abides in him, and bears fruit is one of increased faith, prayer, obedience, love, and mission. Remaining will, re will result in bearing fruit for the glory of God. A life of joy is one rooted in Christ, rooted in the vine. And without this rooting in Christ, the commitment to undergo pruning and the dedication to remaining and bearing fruit, we will just shrivel and die, not fulfilling our purpose, lacking the joy and the love that was promised us in this verse. Fruit-bearing depends on our relationship with Christ. It's a surrender of our needs to Christ. Give us this day our daily bread. The degree to which we rely on ourselves is actually the degree to which we're lacking joy and fellowship with Christ. And you may be saying, okay, Amanda, that sounds great, but what are these, what are these fruit we're supposed to be bearing? Thankfully, Galatians 5 helps us out a little bit. 
It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Stay with me. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Such fruit can only come from our remaining, spending time in the presence of God. And finally, our final verses here, we see the promise of love and joy. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Love is built on relationship. I don't know if you knew that, but it's pretty hard to love somebody if you don't even know them. Um, they have that thing, what is it? You feel like you know people now because uh, Instagram tells you all about them, but that's not real love. It's not mutual love, okay, people? We have to have a relationship with Jesus in order to feel the love of God. And to experience love, we have to remain. We have to abide in his love. You have to experience love in order for it to be complete. What I mean by that is I'm not saying that love ceases to exist if we don't love God back. God still loves us, even if we're disobedient, even if we're lacking a relationship with him. His love exists in full. It's rather to say that we are not fully experiencing his love because we lack the nearness, the knowledge, and the relationship in time in his presence. Remaining that is time spent with God is the foundation of love. And love is the foundation of obedience. And our love for Jesus is the spring for which our obedience comes. Today's passage, John 15, 1 through 11, is really a vision for what our relationship with Christ should be. One that's rooted in the vine. One submitted to pruning and committed to remaining with fruit that will be produced from that. Ultimately, we learn from this passage that the objective of our life as a believer is to live in union with Jesus and in dependence on his presence. And from these fruits that we produce, one of those fruit is joy. So how do we transform our minds and our hearts? How can we be rooted in Jesus and produce the fruit of joy? Transformation is the product of our cooperation with God's spirit, paired with our obedience. It's not just mere will, but habits that cultivates a life of remaining and bearing fruit. So do we change? Does God change us? The answer is yes. It's both. Dallas Willard proposes um, spiritual formation or spiritual transformation requires three things. Vision, intention, and means, or vim, as he likes to call it. And we're going to use this method, vision, intention, and means, to consider how to become people of joy. Earlier, I asked you three questions when we were talking about misconceptions. Where are you going for your source of joy? What would you trade your soul for? And do you believe that Jesus restricts your fulfillment or completes your fulfillment? And I invite us to consider these questions in light of this VIM model as we go through. Just keep these in your mind. We'll start with vision. 
Vision is all about seeking truth. Any of us out there like seeking truth? I think all of us like to believe the truth, seek out the truth. We often believe that joy is simply a feeling, but joy is actually a vision of a life with God. Truth is reinforced by our, the images and the visions that match that truth. If we picture God as this being in the sky, unrelational, unapproachable, a dictator, then we will never be able to have the chance of fully having joy because the vision isn't matching the truth. But the biblical narrative actually shows us that God is the most joyful being in the universe. The Old Testament and the New Testament declare the joy that we receive from God. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Psalm 16.11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Romans 15.13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine this joy? Have you ever had a joy that was so overflowing in your life that you couldn't help but smile and dance and sing? You couldn't help but tell people about how good things were, even in the midst of bad circumstances. God desires for us to be deeply joyful, even if it takes us a lifetime of apprenticeship to him. We have the responsibility to obey his command to rejoice and we owe it to our creator to be as joyful as we can. Because God doesn't just want us to feel joyful. He wants us to live in joyful presence for eternity. I'm not saying we can merely will into a feeling of joy. You cannot transform your life through willing an emotion. I don't know who needs to hear that out there. You cannot transform your life through willing and emotion, but through transforming your thought life, we can transform our emotions. Feelings tend to follow thinking. So if we slow down and we think about the goodness and the greatness of God, the visions that match the truth promised in scripture, if we stop to think about the promise of eternal life of joy that God set forth for us, then we can transform our emotions which play an important part of our spiritual formation. A life of joy is not one that's always happy or has the best gifts, the most money, or the best circumstances that the U.S. has to offer. A life of joy is one full of freedom. Joy is surrender. Joy is discipline. A life of joy looks like waking up every day and counting your blessings. It's going through your morning knowing that even though the coffee's all gone and your kids, or in my case, your cat, kept you up all night, so you're running on three hours of sleep, it's less than delightful, but it's choosing to rant to God instead of taking it out on the people around you. It's a hit and run that you choose to trust God to work out instead of choosing to let your anger be your master. You all probably thought I was going to say that joy is having all the finer things in life, having a perfect morning, watching that sunrise, that nice cup of coffee or tea. You go to work, you get a raise, come home, the house is clean, there's dinner on the table. What better 
situation could you have? But those things, while they're good, actually are just happiness, not joy. Joy is not merely pleasure. It is a feeling. It is happiness. But it's more than that. It's a lifestyle. It's a fruit that's produced from remaining, and it's a choice. Second, we'll move on to intention here. With this renewed vision of life and joy, we're now faced with the decision of whether to trust and believe what the Bible says about joy. We think that joy is passive. It just happens. But joy is actually active because it's a choice. We have the choice to believe Jesus is our source of joy. And what we believe about God and who we're allowing to inform our belief about God impacts how we relate to him. When we believe life and lies about God, about who we are, about what our source of eternal joy is, we experience pain and suffering, a breaking off from the vine, a life that's barren and lacking purpose. Again, it's, it's not that love and purpose cease to exist, it's that we cease to experience it for we've chosen not to receive them. Will you choose to remain in Jesus and depend on him as your source of joy? See, we also have the choice to choose the joy of Jesus or dopamine hits and cheap fulfillment. We have the responsibility as followers of Jesus to orient our whole person, including our desires, toward the joy of the Lord. We must be aware of how our desires, our feelings, influence our thoughts. Our emotions are so deeply connected to our beliefs and our spiritual formation. Author Peter Cesaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, says emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. We must acknowledge, feel, and process our emotions for the growth of our spiritual formation. Emotions are good servants, but they are terrible masters. And lastly, we have the choice to transform our mind and discern truth from the false. Transformation of our desires requires engagement of both our mind and our heart, our thoughts and our feelings. And the way that we navigate our feelings without allowing them to be the masters of our life is through building habits. That is, all those activities that we have power that it, to do that enable us to transform our mind, to do what we cannot by our own willpower. We must discipline our minds to choose and focus on joy. We said earlier that feelings follow thoughts, and it's also true that thoughts are heavily influenced by our feelings. And thoughts do, in fact, evoke and control our feelings, but feelings are still very powerful. They have a very powerful influence on our minds. Dallas Willard says this, he says, healthy feelings, properly ordered among themselves, are essential to a good life. So if we are to be formed in Christ-likeness, we must take good care of our feelings 
and not just let them happen. We might not be able to will ourselves into feeling joy, but we can will a thought life that forms a life of joy. What we believe about hard things really reveals our core beliefs. How do you hold the unsolved mysteries? Why do terrible, unthinkable things happen? Where's the justice? How do you handle and face the tension of my life is painful, but it's also incredible? Scripture and the life of Jesus offer many examples of what it is to hold the tension of pain and sorrow in tandem with joy. David, in the midst of exile, running away from King Saul, writes Psalm 27:6. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Sacrifice with joy. Have you ever been in a place in life where choosing joy actually felt sacrificial? totally out of your control. I have. And when I'm there, I love this particular song. It's called Joy by Page 116. It's in Roman numerals. Um, but it took me a while to figure out how to say that. Anyway, the song Joy by Page 116, it's a spin on the hymn, I've got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart. Okay, but the song perfectly depicts what it is to hold sorrow and joy, and how joy can be sacrificial in moments. In the midst of sorrow to sing, I've got joy, and it is well with my soul. It's not easy. It's painful. But it's powerful. Jesus' life and journey to the cross is also a prime example of a life of joy in the midst of pain and trials. We just read Luke's telling of Christ's journey to the cross this week in microchurch. Talk about a downer during the holidays, but the grace and the mercy and the sacrifice of Jesus' life and journey and death, they're so humbling. And they should spur us on to be joyful. Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2 says, Let us run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. The hope of the vision for a joyful life that the Bible sets out in Jesus' life actually presents this eternal promise that pain is temporary and joy is everlasting. Sorrow and joy must both be seen through the eyes of eternity, the way that God intended. It's not to say that we turn a blind eye, that we ignore reality. It's not to say that we're going to shove our feelings down. It's actually the opposite. It's to say we're going to stand here. We're going to have our eyes wide open. We're going to stare that pain down. We're going to feel that. 
we're going to mourn that. And then we're going to lay them down at the feet of Jesus. We're going to choose to trust that his promise of redemption and love and joy and peace will be realized. And to make this choice, we can't allow our feelings to be our masters. Worship team, if you would come up. So far, we've learned that in order to live a life of joy, we must capture the biblical vision of joy and what a joy-filled life is and create the intention to choose to trust Jesus' promise for that eternal joy. And lastly today, we're going to take a look at the means. So how can we cultivate that joy-filled life? Often we see this Jesus invitation to deny ourselves as restrictive. But in reality, it's the only way to fulfillment is him. His invitation is to prioritize joy and allow him to be our true fulfillment. And we prioritize joy through vision, intention, and means. And those means include habits that we build to transform us. Things like abiding to your quiet time. Things like slowing down. I don't know about you, but it's been a hurried, hurried couple of weeks for me, and I just need a breath. Things like community. Get into a microchurch. Who are those godly friends and people in your life? Things like actually being open to being pruned. What if we saw these things not just as obligations, but as things we genuinely sought and enjoyed? What if quiet time with God wasn't just, oh, I guess I can put in five minutes here. What if it was a delight? What if prayer became the only time in your day that you just truly felt free, truly felt surrender and known? We must let go of our outcomes and our attachment to them. We must live lives that are surrendered because until we detach and are free from the need of our life to go a certain way, we will never find freedom and joy. What if instead of a hurried life, we slowed down? What if we took time to give thanks, to notice the people and the creation around us? I really love my three thankfuls a day. Do it every day and I promise it'll change your life. Richard Foster also puts it this way. He says, if we think we will have joy only by praying and singing songs, we will be disillusioned. But if we fill our lives with simple, good things and constantly thank God for them, we will be joyful. That is full of joy. And with, what about our problems? When we determine to dwell on the good and excellent things in life, we will be so full of those things that they will tend to swallow our problems. We must slow down. What if community wasn't a dread? What if it wasn't, oh, I gotta go see these people, another thing on the calendar? 
but a source of deep friendship, of support in your hardest moments, of a lighthouse that points you back to Christ every time you forget. Invest in the people around you. Invest in Christ-centered community and get into a mega church. What if we were open to the Lord's pruning? That one kind of sounds painful to me. What if we actually sat and said, Lord, search me and know me. Lord, prune away what needs to be pruned so that I can thrive. You know, Strengths Finder, if anybody's familiar with that, has a word for this. It's called restorative. And restorative is a strength that looks forward to failing and correcting and trying again. What if we had that attitude before the Lord? Pruning can look like time spent searching ourselves and inviting God to search us. So to end today, we're going to spend a little time searching ourselves. I invite us to reflect on our three questions from earlier. They're going to be on the screen. The worship team is going to keep playing for us. I just want to take a moment, invite us all to just search ourselves, to surrender our responses to each of these questions to Jesus. Invite him to prune us and transform us. Where are you going for your source of joy? What would you trade your soul for? And do you believe that Jesus restricts your fulfillment or completes it? Let's take some time. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.